Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. You are now listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeyman, amplifying the voices of youth development and modern rites of passage. Hello and welcome to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeyman. Today we have a very special guest joining us from Big Island of Hawaii. We have Clementine Wilson, a Youth Rites of Passage facilitator and current board member of Youth Passageways. Clementine, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start by diving into the big topic uh, among us right now. And uh, Alex and I and our audience, I, I suspect as well, is very curious to hear you speak to the topic of what is queer initiation and also, if you could identify some of the unique elements of queer initiation, um, that would be really helpful for us. So the topic of queer initiation is something that is such a living question for me right now as a queer identified person. And um, in the rites of passage world, as we you know, help facilitate identity development, I think there, there's a, a real loss of queer archetypes. Uh, and those archetypes have been... Um, sort of erased essentially. And so um, queer initiation being the the reclaiming of queer archetypes, knowing your cultural role as a queer person. And so, you know, some elements I think that are really important in the process of queer initiation is is really claiming the gifts of of being queer and and how that that role was really celebrated in in ancient cultures. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking generally here, you know, there's a lot of specifics to that. And, and I just want to name that there's a lot of specifics um, and nuance to to the the queer role in different cultures. But, you know, the themes that I'm seeing as I do my research is that that role was really celebrated. Um, and so a- another thing I think is is a really important part of queer initiation is overcoming shame and and there's, you know, shame comes up in, in lots of different ways in different identities. And what's the specific shame that comes up in queer identity and being able to overcome that through claiming, um, you know, I am, you know, I am gay, I'm a lesbian, I am bi, you know, I am trans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, and so speaking from my own personal experience and my queer initiation has a lot to do with recla- with claiming my role as a non-binary person, claiming my role as a as a threshold walker, someone who is neither here nor there and is walking between those two worlds of gender and how is like and stepping into my gift in that way. Because, you know, when I when I think about rites of passage, I think about understanding your role and your gift and then how can you serve your community in a better way. It's really not about us. It's about how we can serve our communities. And so um, f- so for me personally, queer initiation has been really claiming my role as a threshold walker of gender um, and able to see from both sides and then help guide others through that process. I think that also queer mentors is a huge part of queer initiation. So not being afraid to be a queer mentor for youth. Uh, it's really important for youth to see a successful queer person, uh, really important for them to see that it's going to be okay and that you actually can be a functioning adult and also be out in the world and it's safe to be out in the world. Um, you know, I think that also 
understanding that you're being initiated into a community, you know, in the gay community or in the LGBTQ community, there's the, you know, you talk about being family and, you know, there's a certain look that you give on the street if you walk by someone and, and there's like this, uh, this sort of unspoken bond, at least that I've experienced in my, in my world. And so that really understanding that you're being initiated into a really specific community, um, like what is the history of pride and, you know, really understanding the addressing the collective trauma of being queer and then moving forward into uh, claiming it as a, as a gift. And so there's been a real loss of, of mentors and in a, in a, in a, to a certain extent, there's, there's a lack of queer elders, I would say. And I was talking to a, a really good friend of mine, Pinar, um, recently, and, and, and they mentioned this notion of, you know, in, in we lost so many of our queer elders in the 80s to to the AIDS epidemic, and, and that's a really significant piece of of there are so many people that we lost uh, that were gonna that would be elders right now, and I think and that really struck me, and I hadn't really thought about that before as it related to rites of passage work, but it really struck me to think about that the loss there, the the grief there. Thank you, and I'm. <laughs> As, as you speak, I'm noticing this meta-theme emerge, too. Um, to paraphrase our mutual friend Darcy in, in a TED Talk she delivered recently, you know, rites of passage work is really um, refining our toolkit for transitioning. And, and what better way than to look at who knows how to transition than a group of people who are quite literally guiding humanity through a transition of recognizing there are more than two categories for our fundamental identities. And so that's just present with me, noticing that, you know, as you call yourself a threshold walker, like, wow, what a, what a unique uh, power and gift to be, to be able to serve in that capacity as a rites of passage guide. And then, you know, in a, in another capacity, serving as a guide for humanity to, to look at ourselves and look at these ways we've been showing up for a really long time and question a lot of it. Absolutely. And I, I think about especially non-binary gender and folks that kind of are in between, they represent, they're externally representing what's inside all of us. I mean, we're all, we all carry those two traits within us, but when you, but the, those who are like in that third gender space are able to externally represent it. Like they're an external representation of that. And I've been studying a little bit about the Mahu in ancient Hawaii and the Mahu were, you know, folks that, you know, had both feminine and masculine traits and served their community in that way. And they were really a, a representation of that which exists all in all of us. And so in that way, queer people are have this wholeness that other folks are seeking, right? And there's a, so there's a wholeness to being queer that also can be so affirming. And I think just more and more like queer initiation is about affirming the community, like allowing them to see themselves as this bright shining light instead of something that needs to be you know, behind closed doors with the curtains closed and, you know, like hidden away uh, out of fear, you know, so that that's that's super present for me as well. I'm, I'm noticing so many of my own curiosities named as, as you're speaking. And for one, you know, the archetypal patterns through mythology and through our own stories are are tools that we use. And I think most most rites of passage organizations and facilitators utilize in some form, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I've also noticed that, you know, even in the awareness of like, hey, what's the feminine version of this? What's the what's the female version? I've heard almost nothing in regards to like, what are the the other versions of this? And so, you know, 
just to go back to to really commonly knows one, uh, known archetypes, the king archetype with the queen in balance. Like, where, where's the non-binary option for that? And um, some of the themes that I'm also hearing is that some of the shared elements, that the challenges to overcome in a rite of passage, shame, very present for me, very present um, in my experience as a facilitator. And perhaps, you know, even though that's shared, uh, I'll just suggest maybe that burden is a a bit or a lot more heavy for someone who doesn't fit into the two categories that are so often held as normal today. So there's shared element there, and you know there's a unique maybe degree to which it is felt or have uh, have to overcome through that process as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't have the specific stats on hand, but you know it is commonly known that folks who identify as LGBTQ are more likely to take their own life than those who don't identify that way. And, um, and I, I think that just needs to be named. And I, and I think that's just a reality that we're facing. And, um, and I think a, a lot of queer people are initiating themselves and most of the time in really unhealthy ways, uh, whether that's through drugs, um, alcohol, uh, risky sexual activity, things like that. Um, and then just to speak quickly to your point on the, you know, the king queen archetype and, um, you know, no mention of that third. And it's so interesting because that third existed, it existed, you know, and, and we know that. And, um, the most commonly used, the most common term that, that we hear maybe here is the, uh, the two spirit archetype from native American culture. And a lot, you know, that, that identity specifically has in some ways been co-opted by, um, the queer community, um, especially, you know, those who are white and because of this sort of cultural loss or we don't know who our kind of our ancestors are in that way. So we're kind of grabbing on to this two spirit archetype because it's, um, you know, it's, it's yeah, I, I feel like that's the most accessible archetype that I can find right now um, is the two spirit. Um, and it's just interesting that those questions aren't being asked as much as, um, you know, just the, the binary archetypes. And, and so this, that's just a living question for me as I, as I continue to search for my own ancestors as a, you know, as a European queer person. Thank you for bringing that up, especially the point that if we don't offer some form of rite of passage for our youth, that they're going to create their own. And it often ends up resulting in an unhealthy way. Um, as you mentioned, with through drugs or alcohol or other risk-taking behaviors. Um, we've noticed that here in our community on Vashon and in the greater society that we're living in, honestly. Um, and along that topic, it, it's been our experience that the, a lot of adolescent boys are still carrying many negative connotations around being gay or being trans or queer, um, and I'd like to hear your perspective on what are some ways that we can help address that and really be an ally and be an advocate and help help reshape the way that we see our people. Yeah, gosh, I mean, that's such a big question. And I definitely don't claim to know the answer to that. But I will say that I think that, you know, gender and sexuality get, get um, I think, combined too often where, you know, anything that's not masculine is, um, is homosexual. And that's absolutely it's not true. You know, there's plenty of feminine men who don't identify as gay. Um, and so I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I wish I knew the answer. I think that 
all we can do is increase the role models for, for young men to see role models of all different kinds, um, all different identities. So then it's just more visible. I think that's really, I mean, just making queerness more visible and celebrated and really lifted up as, you know, like it's, it's kind of special to be this way because you know, you're, it's not common, you know, like you have a very specific, you're holding a very specific role in your community and, 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 and how can we lift that up instead of uh, pushing it out? And so, you know, I think that there's a long way to go and there's so much social pressure and um, masculinity is, you know, lifted up as even in the gay community, like there's plenty of like a lot of gay men, I don't want to speak for all gay men, but a lot of gay men, you know, want to date masculine men, right? And so it's really, it's, it can be really hard for, you know, a feminine gay guy, you know, as well. And so I think there is this, like, um, the, this, like, kind of the masculinity being held up as, um, as the dominant. And I just think it just needs, we just need to get these other identities um, to be able to shine forth a little brighter. Yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm just noticing in myself a softening as as we're addressing these topics in myself and feeling that for so much of my life being a part of athletics institutions, school institutions and other forms of patriarchy that we see today that I've had to actively suppress so many um components of my being that felt right that were not cool that may have been labeled gay or um anything else besides this model of masculinity that we're told is correct or or strong or whatever that may be. And um, I just wanted to name that because it's it's very current for me. It's an emerging curiosity for me to be diving into this topic as we work with self-identified males who are, in many cases, like right on the cusp of even deciding if that is right for them. And so my question now is, how do we hold that process compassionately um, how do we create an inviting and um, safe place for a young male to question those things or a young person it doesn't have to be a male a young person to question that if we know or we come to recognize that somebody is questioning that or actively transitioning during their rite of passage? Yeah, great question and uh, another living question for me. I think that um making sure to you're being inclusive in your offering. So for example, um, I work at a rite of passage program currently and, um, and we offer gender councils as part of their rite of passage. And, um, you know, and, and historically we were kind of offering these, this third queer council, like every once in a while, when we knew that there was a student coming through who identified that way. And, and I was like, Hey, you know, I feel like we need to offer this every single week. There could be kids that aren't out, you know, like we need to offer this space every single time, even if no one decides to join that particular council. And so that's just one example of how you can make, you know, a rite of passage inclusive is just making sure that you have inclusive offerings, making sure that you're not using unnecessary gendered language um, in ways that, you know, are going to be disempowering, you know, making sure that you have access to guides who are queer identified. I think it's really important for young people to see a successful queer person. Like, what does it look like? Hey, this person is, you know, they've survived their adolescence. They are, they are out. It's, they, they feel safe enough to be out. Therefore it's safe for me to be out. So I think queer mentors, I, I know like I've had a lack of queer mentors as an adolescent 
I had zero queer mentors and, you know, I have some now, but it's definitely hasn't been a prominent part of my life, um, especially in my younger years. So I think that's a huge part is just having queer mentors and not being so scared to disclose our own identities in this work, you know, and um, it, it doesn't have to be taboo. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I identify as gay, like, and, and that, that can be an entry point. So I think those are some ways to, to, to make sure it's inclusive and also um, to be asking questions, not assuming, just always asking questions of these young folk um, so that they can feel comfortable to explore these questions as they're developing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing as I, as I sit with this, this possibility of myself being a questioning a, a young person who's, you know, tentative in a new group, maybe a rite of passage setting, and then to not already have a space or uh, a, an invitation to fall into a different category. And so in the case of your councils, it's like, oh, well, we have this. So, you know, we'll change things up a little bit and we'll make a space for you. And for me, that would feel like, oh, I'm a burden. Like I, I'm causing people extra work or there wasn't already a place for me. Now you have to go out of your way to make a place for me. And and I'm noticing in myself, like that wouldn't feel very good. You know, I might even choose a category just to not be in the way. And that is, I, I think we're in agreement. Like that's not what we're hoping to do. We're actually hoping to invite that other space, invite that which we can't even see right now to call in, you know, call in the, the true identity of these young people. Absolutely. And and the reality of offering these councils is, you know, sometimes there's one kid in that third council and that can feel really scary and othering as well. And so it, that's also a microcosm for the greater world they're walking into. Like you might be the only queer person in a room, you know, and let's talk about that, you know, and how can we hold this space safely while also acknowledging that this is uncomfortable this that must have been uncomfortable for you to choose this council knowing that all of your friends went there over to the men's council um and i want to bring up this this sort of case study that i've been working with um there was a, a guide i've been working with to lead queer councils and there was a, a recent group that went out last week and um and the student was in that situation, he was the only student in that queer council, ended up being a super empowering space. And, um, you know, when when they leave that space, they they come up with sort of this statement of intention. So sort of a, a concise statement of intention of like who they are, like what, it, what who am I? And so the student um, came out of that rite of passage experience with an intent that, that goes, um, I am a shameless queer warrior who is fearless, loves himself, and trusts himself unconditionally. And um, and I didn't know that until I saw this student like shouting that out loud. Um, I had no idea, and it was just this moment of like that's queer initiation right there. And like it was just really beautiful to see that, and to also um, to to see a student be able to claim an identity that must have been so scary to, to do in front of his peers. So I just wanted to share that. How empowering that experience must have been for them. Uh, I heard you mention earlier that you never had a queer mentor uh, when you were coming of age and, you know, that there's oftentimes a shortage of queer mentors in our communities. I'm curious to hear you speak to any inner or external resources that you may have for for teens that are navigating that process as they figure out who they truly are. Absolutely. Um, 
there there's there's growing resources out there now and um there's actually a program in um in the Seattle area called Out There Adventures. They do adventure programming for for queer youth. Um they and they're a small nonprofit, but they're, you know, amazing people. Um a great way to get, you know, involved with a queer mentorship. Um my really dear friends in Boulder, So and Pinar have created a program called Queer Nature and what they're doing is bringing ancestral skills and nature-based survival skills to the queer community and also offering rites of passage work. Um, so that's queer nature that's in Boulder. Um, and then some, I'm going to be involved in June in a, a, a queer quest with the school of lost borders. Um, and they're, they're a wonderful rites of passage program, but they offer once a year, um, you know, a queer quest. Um, and now for the first time we'll be offering a youth queer quest, uh, in June and, they're looking for a couple more youth to join that program and are offering scholarships and things like that. And so those are the three main, you know, places that I'm really holding right now is, um, you know, sort of the, the up and coming uh, sort of spaces held for our community in this way. And I hope that there are more that I don't know about and um, will be more in the future. But those are the ones that come to mind right now. Thank you for naming those. Um, we will definitely steer our listeners in those directions. And I know that uh, the School of Lost Borders is an organization that does some amazing work. So I'm excited to hear that you're going to be working with them. Yeah, yeah. I'm participating. I'm actually going out and fasting. Um, so kind of as I hold this question of what is queer, queer initiation, I'm hopefully going to be, you know, going through that myself so I can then help, you know, to guide others through it in the future. Yeah. And I, I that resonates really deeply with me in this in this role of, as I call it, aspiring human development guide, you know, one, one foot in and one foot out of the experience and, and serving as a bridge in that way. And, for, you know, for us, even even settling on an organizational name of Journeyman is, is to acknowledge this place in the middle, this place of tension, um, the role of the mentor really kind of sitting between two extremes in the spectrum. And it's, it's incredibly important for me to keep, uh, to keep questioning and stay curious about the elements of our programs and, and the events that we hold, because there is a polarizing element to doing things for only one gender. And our vision, our vision, if I may speak for you, Alex, is is to be cultivating a sense of, of place and responsibility for those who do identify as male in a society that ultimately grants us an easier way. Um, and, you know, this, as I mentioned before, this, this structure of patriarchy is um, certainly something that we we choose to look at. We choose to look at in a in a in a closed container in a way that will allow us to, when we leave our container, show up in a better way for for everyone. And this topic of being an ally is has come full circle for me so frequently now. And um, as I as I consciously choose to put myself in that position of ally and say I want to be an ally, say I <clears throat> to say that I. Um, consider myself an ally to the LGBTQ community. Uh, I'm curious to know how how can we how can we compassionately invite those uh, who don't consider themselves an ally yet, or they're still uncomfortable with reframing pronoun use, or um, even looking at their own fundamental identity. How can we compassionately invite those into this conversation? Because I've also noticed some hostile uh, some hostile ways of treating that, which is like. I don't have the patience and I'm just angry when I hear someone who doesn't already have uh, a basic understanding of these things. 
and it's not my place to judge that. I, I'm not in that position, and I feel and I feel that there's an opportunity to to find ways to open that conversation up a bit and get some of those who don't consider themselves an ally yet to understand what it means and why it might actually serve them to be to be open to that. This question of allyship is something that I've been thinking a lot about too, not only for those who, how do you be an ally, even if you identify as LGBTQ? Um, and, and, and yeah, the question of how to bring, how to bring folks in that may not identify as an ally or, or wanna be an ally. Um, you know, my first thought is like, you can't, you're not going to be able to force anyone to be until they're ready. Um, so I think patience and compassion, but also, you know, what does it mean to take risks um, and to, to really look at your own discomfort and look at your own privilege and look at your own, um, like, why didn't I speak up then? Like what, like, so I guess just inviting those questions um, and, and helping folks be in a, in a, in a contained way, like help, help them ask those questions that they might be afraid to ask in a queer space um, because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, holding, um, holding groups with those who identify as straight to talk about queer issues um, so that you maybe yourself can be an ally that you're actually educating um, you know, heterosexual people or those who don't identify as queer, you can be educating them using your own place in this world to be educating um, those people. And so that that's just one thought that I have. And um, another, I think another quality of being an ally is, is really to, to listen more and talk less. And, and what I mean by that is just to be able to center the voices of those who are marginalized. Um, so it, we're talking specifically now about queer people, but that I think that applies to uh, all the intersections it, of being queer and, and other um, identities and, and and race and all those ways in which um, how important it is to center the voices of those who are most marginalized. Um, and then as someone that holds a lot of privilege in this world, how can you step back and actually use your privilege to create more space for those people? I think that's the best thing you can do um, in that way. And so I don't know if that answered your question clearly, but the, those are the thoughts that come up for me when, when talking about allyship and the complexity of it. It, it does. It, it, it answers for me completely. And I, I feel that another thing that you named here, which is that there's an opportunity for those of us who have privilege, who have um, you know, been granted these, um, these privileges to use that, you know, to use that consciously to then you know, create equity and create justice uh, for, for those. And I've also heard voices that seemed to suggest that um, we ought to just mm, maybe give up all the privileges in a, in a way that you know, might actually slow the rate of change. It might actually take away our power to use that in a good way and, and to, you know, kind of hand the torch, so do I use our platform to amplify the voices of who's not being heard right now. And yeah, that feels right for me. It feels right for me to be able to turn, uh, as I wrote recently in an article, to be able to go look backstage for, for someone who hasn't had their chance to speak yet. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Clementine, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor to have you here on Rightways Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. These are these are such important questions, and like I said, it's just they're so alive. And the um, I'm also excited to just continue exploring these questions. And um, yeah, so thanks for allowing me to to share my thoughts. 
When you have a gender, or when you are perceived as having a gender, you don't get laughed at in the street. You don't get beat up. You know which public bathroom to use, and when you use it, people don't stare at you or worse. You know which form to fill out. You know what clothes to wear. You have heroes and role models. You have a past. That's Kate Bornstein. Special thanks to our sponsors. Pura Vida, handmade bracelets from Costa Rica, supporting full-time jobs for local artisans. Zapier, connecting all of your web apps together to make life easy and functional. Voice of Vashon, broadcasting from the Puget Sound on KVSH 101.9 FM. You've been listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeyman. Thanks again for joining us. If you like what you heard, subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. And remember to leave us your feedback, and please give us a rating. Find us online at www.journeymen.us. Yeah.